millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm David Kern and I quickly wanted to say a word of thanks to some of our friends who are making this show possible. Our friends over at the CLT, the Classic Learning Test, are doing an amazing work. They're a classically-based alternative to the SAT and the ACT, and it's the fastest-growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 90 colleges now accept the CLT, and many of them even endorse the CLT as their preferred admissions test. That's even more than the SAT and the ACT. Students who take the test can benefit from same-day test results and can share their scores with colleges for no additional charge. To learn more or to find out how to take a test, you can head over to cltexam.com. Again, to register for the CLT, you head over to cltexam.com. So again, thanks so much to our friends over at the Classic Learning Test for sponsoring the Cersei Institute Podcast Network this month. It's because of them and partners like them that this network is possible. And with that, enjoy your show. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Forma here on the Sourcing Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined in our studio, are we allowed to call it a studio, in the office by Matt Bianco and Graham Pittman. Welcome to Forma, guys. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Graham Pittman, by the way, if you want to be able to recognize my voice. <laughs> and I'm Matt Bianco. <laughs> so... <laughs> best impression of me so I've ever are, heard. So, I think so. So we're here to to talk a little bit about the Forma magazine. How's it going, David? From which this podcast well, gets its uh gets its name. You know, thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah, Matt, is that have we crossed the banter threshold for Matt? Anybody anybody who anybody who's never listened to Close Reads is very confused right now because Matt Bianco doesn't like close reads because of all the banter on it and he doesn't like to come on. So um, Graham was, you know, just pushing Matt's buttons over there for a second. But we're here to talk about the pot, the magazine from which this show, this podcast gives its name. Uh, Forma, the magazine, is going to be hitting your mailboxes in the next month or so. It's off to the printer. They're, I'm sure, busily getting that onto paper and getting it out to your mailboxes. So you'll be seeing that uh, before April. But we wanted to come on and talk a little bit about the issue and some of the things that are in it and the experience of making it and some of Graham's art. And Matt wrote an article for it, so I wanted to ask him about that. It's a pretty good issue, I think. So we're here to talk about that. If you want to get your hands on a future issue, you can head over to CerseiMagazine.com and subscribe to that. We can only send it, unfortunately, to addresses within the United States, but if you are a bookseller or involved with a bookseller or a school in Canada or England or somewhere else in the world, we'd be happy to ship you some in bulk if you are interested in helping us distribute them in your country. So you can let us know about that if you're if you're so inclined. But let's talk about this issue quickly. Um, the features in this issue include a lengthy interview that Graham and our friend Martin Cawthorn and I conducted with Wendell Berry. We had 16,000 words that we distilled down to 8,000, which are 
8,000 pretty solid ones, but there's a lot that's left on the cutting room floor, so we'll talk about that in a second. There is an interview with... You cut Wendell Berry's words? Well, you know, I've still got them. They're just not in the magazine. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and he he self edited some of it right. too. Right. So we had the lengthy. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that because there's a whole there was quite a process that went into getting that out to out to the magazine. Um, there's also an interview with uh, well conversation really between uh, Emily Wilson who produced the recent uh, Odyssey translation. She's the first woman to have a published version of the Odyssey, and Sarah Rudin who's done a lot of translation, but she was um, the first woman to translate the Aeneid. Um, well, at least translate and have it published. I'm sure there are lots of women who translated it uh, throughout history. But I sat down with them for a conversation to talk about being the first women to translate the, uh, the Aeneid and the Odyssey and the experience of translation, um, what goes into that. Um, and so we'll talk about that in a second as well. But Matt, you wrote a piece for the issue offering some tips for classroom conversation the theme for this issue is the conversation issue so it seemed like a natural direction uh what can you give us a preview of that of that art of that uh article um a preview of the article yeah you know don't give everything away don't give all your secrets away okay um basically it's it's getting at kind of what are what are those things that inhibit students from speaking up and participating in the classroom conversation, trying to identify what those things are, and then um, giving some tips to overcome those things or to eliminate those things if possible so that students won't have, won't have those things getting in the way, right, to, to be able to participate. Um, I draw heavily from, uh, from a passage from a G.K. Chesterton essay in which he, uh, he talks about people who speak often and openly and freely and gregariously and, you know, what, what we might call today the extrovert or, or just, you know, kind of the big mouth, loud mouth people. <laughs> Show us. And, yeah. And then, um, and then on, on the other hand, the quieter, shyer people, you know, that we, we might call introverts or, or um, reclusive or something, you know, uh, and he talks about those two kinds of people and how they are viewed in you know, by people in a community, and then I draw from those ideas and kind of expand on those to um, to identify how to how to balance those guys out. So the the more talkative people talk less, and the less talkative people speak more. So is the idea how to have a Socratic dialogue in class, like tips that can help you do that, or is it not that specific? Um, it's probably not so specific to to. Like, like how to initiate that kind of a conversation. It kind of assumes maybe that you, you're doing that mm -hmm. um, or, you, or you have ideas on how to do that, but then it's how to draw the students into into that conversation, the, the conversation that you've started, yeah. but in a way that's more balanced and across the, you know, around the room. So what was Chesterton's argument then about each of those kinds of people? This may be its own show. <laughs> it might be, yeah, because it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, you know, I mean, even just in the way I was describing him there, the 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 loudmouth, talkative person, uh, according to Chesterton, is typically viewed by society as 
as a big mouth, as selfish, as self-important, as somebody who yeah. desires to be the center of attention. Like ne- yeah, the negative connotation. A, a, a negative connotation. Yeah. And then the quieter person is typically viewed by society as somebody who's quiet and shy and hu- and therefore humble because they're not always trying to get the attention. Speak softly, carry a big stick. Yeah, yeah, something like that, right? <laughs> and Chesterton um, kind of flips that on the on its head and says, you know, the thing is, the the loudmouthed person knows that he's being judged that way by the society and and um so believes in the value of the truth that he's willing to put his reputation on the line in order to share the truth Hmm. whereas the quieter person values his reputation more than the truth and so won't put himself on the line won't put his reputation on the line and that's why he doesn't speak up Hmm. so so he says in essence that the the loudmouth person is actually the humble one because he sacrifices his reputation, whereas the quiet person is actually the arrogant one who is unwilling to sacrifice his reputation. Totally flips the, you know, the, the normal view of it on its head. I understand why you fell in love with that argument. I don't know what you mean at all, <laughs> What? So do you? Well, do you? Do you agree with what his argument, or do you think it's just a, pers- a worthy perspective to include in our classrooms as we're trying to guide conversations with our students to try to understand to not just assume that a kid who is likes to talk a lot, is trying to be a show-off, and that the kid who's quiet is right. sort of, like, humble and, like... Right, I think it causes us to... Um, it, it ought to cause us to reconsider our evaluations of those students, mm-hmm. but I don't think that we should necessarily flip it and then automatically always assume that somebody who talks a lot is humble <laughs> and yeah, somebody who right. doesn't talk at all is arrogant. Right. I don't think we ought to we ought to view them that way either. Right. Um, but it's helpful to think of it that way, you know, to, it, at least in just getting us to reevaluate those initial assumptions about mm-hmm. the students. Mm-hmm. I think it's also helpful to to think about the students in and I wouldn't make this the sole category of, or the way of assessing them either. But I think it's also helpful sometimes to think about the students who who, you know, an idea pops into their head and then they put it out there on the on the table to test it. Mm-hmm. And then there, there are other students who, when an idea pops in their head, they want to test it first before they put it out there. And um, I think that's a helpful way, too, to think about, you know, the way students are are thinking or participating in the class. But then but then then there's the danger there, too, because some people will will then categorize themselves as, well, I'm a verbal processor. And then that mm-hmm. becomes an excuse to talk as much as they want, to say as much as they want, to to blurt out everything that pops in their yeah, head. Yeah. And that's not. I mean, that now they're just they've just found some clever intellectual way to to justify being overly aggressive in in participating in a conversation. So I think a lot. I wonder, at least, a lot of ex or introverts, um, like you're saying, they're very self conscious, um, and sometimes that feels involuntary maybe for that person so maybe they're they're valuing the self but they don't like i know a lot of introverts who are quiet in conversation and things like that but they desperately don't want to be you know so Mm -hmm. it's a i think that his argument's still true but it might not be a conscious decision for that Mm. student or that person yeah um yeah but that helps with the role of the teacher to help Bring that out. Yeah, and I guess <clears throat> as a teacher, we can't be, you know, too too quick to settle on an opinion of a student. Right. Either way. Right. Like as soon as we've decided what a student is, 
You know, it's, it goes yeah. back to the it's same with our kids. Like it's the Charlotte Mason thing that our children are born persons. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to like when you're looking at your five year old or your four year old or your seven year old or whatever, young children, it's easy to sort of keep that perspective because they're still developing so much. Right, and it's right. easy to be like, well, they're they're throwing themselves on the floor or they're not wanting to do their work or whatever seven year olds do or three year olds or whatever and say, well, they're still born persons. Mm-hmm. But then when they get to high school and you're really engaging in conversation, I feel like maybe it's you don't. You're less like naturally inclined to say, "Well, that person's doing something wrong, or acting a certain way," but they're still a born person. It's more like at that point, you you're just like, "We got to beat them. Yeah, <laughs> you got to right, get it out of right. them. You know, you got to somehow knock it out of them." Um, but but as soon as we get too too quick to judge, or too check, too quick to make a judgment about what a student is as a person, and stop like stop constantly checking that judgment then that's a problem in terms of how we're interacting with our students. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the things that jumped out me out at me in the writing of the article was that, you know, we tend to think of student participation in, in a conversation as, as a means of, for, for us, as a means of us as teachers, as a means of assessing their, their understanding so I, like we we judge we grade them on participation as mm-hmm. it were, mm-hmm. but but the reason we want participation is, or, or one of the reasons we want participation might be because we want to see that they've read the book or that they have mm-hmm. thoughts on it or yeah. or that they've you know assimilated or or synthesized ideas from it, mm-hmm. um, and and the article got me thinking that in the writing of the article it got me thinking that part of the purpose of participation might actually be to cultivate humility. Um, in in light of the way Chesterton had kind of, you know, identified, given us society's definitions of those two characters and then flipped it on us. And that, and that participation is a way to, to cultivate humility as much as it is to do these other things. And that maybe mm-hmm. if we think, if we add that to our, our purposes for the conversation, then, then um, we're we're expanding, we're ennobling what what's going on in that in that conversation, hmm. rather than just kind of reducing it to a test or something. You know, did you have a good time writing the article, or was it a, was it one of those articles that you know you were glad when it was done? Um, <laughs> it was one of those things when I was asked to write it, I was like, oh, I gotta write an article, <laughs> and then when when the uh the chesterton thing kind of happened upon it happened upon me it was um why are you grinning at me like that graham nobody can see you on the other side of this microphone grinning at me like that and it's weird i think you, i think once you find you found a chesterton article or quote that would fill up half of the space <laughs> that you needed to write you felt very good that's true that's true yeah. it was a third not a half but yes that's still true yes when i found one third of the total word count that I needed in a quotation from Chesterton, <laughs> it made the rest of the article much, much easier to write. And interesting to lay out. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But then, but then, you know, writing it and kind of seeing some of those things was fun. And then, and then going through the editing process with you and seeing even how, you know, some of the points could be made more clearly and, and some of the language could be improved upon. Um, as I said that day, you, you make me look smarter than I am. So thanks. You're welcome. Yeah, in the um, way, in the way, Graham with his camera makes me look better than I am, so better looking than I am. Well, let's talk about the cover for a second. Um, as I said, this is the conversation issue. Um, it's our second issue 
as specifically Forma. So the first five issues were just the Cersei magazine. And we started realizing, you know, like we call it Cersei 2015, for example, Cersei magazine 2015. But we started wanting to go to two issues a year. Um, we've got some long-term plans for it. And it didn't really work to just call it the Cersei magazine or Cersei 2015 or whatever. So we switched to Forma. Um, I wrote a little bit about why last issue. My dad wrote a little bit more at the end of this issue diving in a little mm. bit deeper on that. So you can check that out if you want to know more about that change. But along the way, we made some design changes, including to the cover. Um, so as we were thinking about the conversation issue, where did your first um, invention take you, Grant? Like, where did you, what was your first thoughts on how, Did you kind of go, did you, did you think in the abstract vein first or something more direct at first? Usually I, usually I go direct first and then try to, I, I try to see if it's serviceable, and if so, um, I'll make a cover that's kind of a one-to-one, you know, with conversation, it would be two people talking, something like that. Right, yeah. And then you can usually tell from there if it's if it's going to be bland or if it's going to be dynamic. And even if it's dynamic, if it's bland, you know pretty fast, let's let's get away from this. But even if it's dynamic, I try to shelve it. And then kind of deconstruct the idea. Um, I'm glad you did that with this one because that first, that first graphic that you sent, where it was just the word "conversation" <laughs> in, in colorful letters yeah. and a balloon font, the comic stands was read. an odd choice. It was like a little yeah. off-brand for Graham. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> so we had eventually we had about ten um, mock-ups, um, and then from there getting people's feedback easily cuts it down. So then we ended up with three and, uh, have people seen, well, have people have seen it by now, by the time this runs? Uh, probably not. Okay. Well, they'll have seen the cover. Oh yeah. Cause, Cause you can see the cover it. on, on searchingmagazine.com. So we landed on a, I think it's a restaurant scene, but it kind of looks like it could be a house too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's a lot that's appealing about it. There's, um, we like the tones obviously. And you see like the glasses there. Um, and it looks like a nice, relaxing, but I don't know. It looks like a very nice place that you'd like to be to have a conversation. Because once we're starting, if you start to do like the one-to-one thing where conversation is the topic and you're having an actual photo of a conversation, then it opens up a lot more questions um, or it gets too specific. And this one, I feel like... Um, is is far more open to interpretation yeah um yeah like yeah because if you have two kids having a conversation that makes you that's completely different than two you know elderly people which is something else we thought about or if you have hands you know in conversation that's another thing there's just all these things and they were they were little a bunch of italians their hands (laughs) around (laughs) (laughs) or or even like teachers and students like those are just too specific and so this one i felt like was well, I, I like the look of it, and I and I feel like it worked pretty well. I remember looking at seven or eight at first, and there were like two that I think stood out. And we both kind of agreed on mm-hmm. which two stood out. There was a couple that were pretty, pretty out there too that were interesting, but it's hard because you come up with good stuff, but then it's got to kind of fit in the vein of past issues and things like that. So yeah, you've got to think, think like past does. issues the vibe of the issue itself like the, the writing aesthetic of all the other stuff mm-hmm. we do and the ideas talked about um, yeah because some of the ideas are really fun but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make sense or it might 
people might see it and think like, why, you know, like, that's why we didn't go with the one where the topsoil was all eroded away and there was an oil rig in the background. Cause, cause we knew Wendell Berry was in the, in the issue. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Don't yeah. you have a meeting or something? <laughs> so one of the reasons that I liked that one, and I, I, that was one of the first, the first seven and we ended up coming back to it. You played with a few different things, yeah. but we kind of, we ended up coming back to that. And I remember at the time thinking it looks like the kind of thing that you can put yourself in like it's not there's not already people sitting in the chairs right so you can see yourself sitting there like it makes it feel more personal yeah more personal Mm -hmm. more adaptable yeah relatable identifiable there you go you got any more all the words i have all the words (laughs) all the best words in fact um so the cover, yeah, you can check out the cover if you head over to our Facebook page um, or uh, searchingmagazine.com. Can we announce or can we tell people how much he vied to get onto the cover? Matt Bianco? Yeah. yeah. But you wouldn't Photoshop me onto that cushion in the picture? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matt's, Matt's name does appear on the front cover yeah. of, this, of, of the he magazine. He made right, us an undisclosed amount. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right next to the names of Sarah McKenzie, Emily Wilson, Sarah Rudin, and Wendell Berry. I also Tanya Harding to a couple people. Yeah. <laughs> off of it. <laughs> nice. It's sort of true. Sort of true. For all we know, it's really true. I don't know. Um, yeah, and another, I don't, don't want to know. Another... Um, Another art feature that's in the magazine is a excerpt of chapter 10 from Sarah McKenzie's new book, The Read Aloud Family. Uh, and I just interviewed um, Sarah about this forthcoming book, which is due out on March 27th. So um, the week of March 13th, we're going to run that on the podcast network. So we'll save that because I talked to her for a good long time about about her book. But, you, you know, that that article in there is is another um, is another feature. And that's all about uh, conversations with your kids about books. Um, and, and kind of how to make that a part of your family life, um, which is sort of the central theme of the book, but it's a really good chapter on just having meaningful conversations with your kids I, about books. I took the book home to take a photo of it for the magazine, and I had it for, I think, two or three days, and my wife read it all. Oh, did she? Because she knew that it had to come back to the office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good Is, that, really is that legal? Yeah. Okay. They good. sent us. Yes, they did. There's a review copy, right? Yeah, exactly. She it, reviewed it. In yeah, mind. she reviewed it. It was she. It was two thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk Wendell Berry because the kind of centerpiece, although not literally the centerpiece of the magazine, but the main feature is this eight thousand word, um, like eight page interview with Wendell Berry, and Graham, you and I and Martin Cothran went to. Yeah, did you hear that? What? I wasn't there. I begged to go on that trip, and I was left out. And now you want I, me to sit here and talk about Wendell Berry? <laughs> See you later. Bye. <laughs> Matt does have a meeting to go to. I feel like we did tell you you could come if you could make it work. You went somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, Matt. Bye. Um, so, yeah, we went to Kentucky. We um, went to Wendell Berry's house. Martin knew him already a little bit, so we brought him along for, you know, moral support. Um, and then you had to design a... He was like the icebreaker. The icebreaker, yeah. We had to um, design a spread, yep. a cover spread for that. Um, but let's talk first about going there. Um, we both have well, met him a couple times. We got in a car. We drove west. <laughs> stopped at used bookstore. Over the mountains. Yep. Um, and we, So we had about two hours with him. We'd met him twice, right? Before that, yeah. yeah. Two different Turkey conferences, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So he invited us out to their house, and I remember, I remember being a little surprised because you're yeah, like you're driving through this like really nice the kind of countryside you think of with Kentucky farmland, mm-hmm. bluegrass, 
rolling hills, all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden he kind of like went up into this rise and his house isn't, it's not the kind of farmhouse you see like in some mid century painting. There's, it's not that sort of like, um, you can't, you don't see grass as far as you can see. I in think that's what I had in my mind. Yeah. It's hard once you get there and then you leave, you can't really remember what your expectations were, but yeah. I know they were different. Yeah. Um, Instead, like you come around this hill and you're almost, it almost feels like you're like, like in a mountainous type area mm -hmm. and the house is up on a hill and you don't really, it kind of comes up on you all of a sudden. And there's this little place you can park right across the road, right yeah. by the river. And then there's this concrete, white concrete brick building, whatever it is. And that turned out to be his writing shed. Yeah. We thought it was like a gas station or something. Yeah. And so it's like, it's not quite as like, um, uh, stereotypical or traditional as I think what we, as what I thought anyway. Right. Until you get inside. Right, and I think also like that um, the documentary that uh, oh, what's her name? Um, I've I've lost it. The seer. Yeah, the seer. Um, I think I was. You get an idea of what his, um, his land and and his life is like. I think you get a really good idea, but yeah. I think a lot of that wasn't filmed directly. Laura Dunn, by the way. Laura Dunn, thank yeah. you. Um, wasn't filmed directly there, on the property. I think no, it was I don't like think a lot nearby was. or something. Yeah. So, but I didn't know so, that. Yeah, so like time, even so. the yard in the yeah. documentary is different than the yard. Yeah. It does a good job of like capturing the essence. Yes. So then we, so then we get there, there's this hillside right in front of the house overlooking the road. There's a few sheep there. We're greeted by a couple border collies, Maggie and Liz, very friendly on the stairs. There's a picture of me with one of them in the issue that you took. Um, mm -hmm. There's a picture of one of the sheep looking at you mm -hmm. with the house kind of in the rear cool sheep um and it's a little more wild in the best way than than like maybe what i expected it's not like i said it's not that sort of thing that we sentimentalize right. about mid-century farms or whatever right um but then a lot you, of a lot of like gnarled trees yeah yeah and wait when did we go we went in october end of october, october. It was cold it was breezy there was like um they had their the trees were all turned yep yeah, yeah. i remember okay and there's like lots of um local folk art even in the yard things that you would yeah that that, that you would you've never seen before handmade thing handmade wooden figures and things made out of stumps and stone and stuff like that local local yeah local. for sure but then so when you walked into their house wendell barry comes out greets us brings us in what was your first thought okay the in the inside of the house was exactly what i pictured how so um traditional but lived in mm -hmm. and kept up well, mm -hmm. uh, but just books everywhere. Yeah, there's lots books, of window lights, um, a piano, old stove. I mean, it was is pretty wonderful. Um, I don't know how long they've lived there. I can't remember, but I think since the '60s. It's been a while. I think they lived there since they came back from New York. So then we go into their kitchen. Oh, and he had his solar solar panels. Solar yeah. panels. That was kind of fun. One thing that I liked was there was um like cool paintings mm -hmm. like folk art paintings in the living room um it was very like you you definitely could see yourself sitting in that living room next to the wood stove reading some poetry or something right all through the winter and then you go into their dining room kitchen what was the kitchen the mm -hmm. kitchen with um and there's like a couple of rocking chairs there and another wood stove and um the house got nice and cozy as we yeah. were sitting there um, we sat at this little round table it was the three of us wendell berry and tanya berry um she gave us fruit and coffee, yep. which was just fine. <laughs> and uh, and cookies. Oh, yeah. That's um, great. I like 
from my view, I could see all her cookbooks and you could see some of them were like the ones that I have. Like I was, I don't know. I don't know. Like the ones like that are almost modern? popular or hip. Yeah. And yeah. then you've got these ones that are old and you can see that they're passed on or they're <laughs> from like the old ladies in their town. Um, what was the, what was your impressions of the conversation or what do you remember most from the conversation? Um, cause we ended up talking for well over two hours, three hours. Right. He was more- very gracious with his time and you can tell he's, they practice a lot of hospitality. They, they're not, they're used to people coming in and out of their house all the time. It's, it's pretty wonderful. Um, but yeah, I thought the conversation was enlightening. It was really, how much in, uh, into the article should we get here? As much as you want. I mean, well, I, I, so a bunch was cut. So when he goes into, you know, talking about his school years, I thought that was fascinating because I'd never heard any of that before. Yeah. The Navy stuff was new to me. Um, I think just how easy that conversation was because you ask him one question too and he talks for 15 minutes and you end up completely, you know, somewhere else down a different avenue. Yeah. Um, But when he talks about, he talks a lot about Kentucky and Mm -hmm. a lot about their town and it's just, it was kind of surreal because you're right, you know, he's talking about the land that you're sitting on right now Yeah. and the town that you're in and that, that was kind of a, eye-opening because i mean he's talked for years and years about um kind of the loss of the small town yeah um and and how the kids go to college and don't come back Mm -hmm. and things like that and when you're actually there while he's talking about it you feel like the weight of it more yeah than just reading it in one of his books and i was really struck you know i've read the the interview so many times now and editing it um, and then going back and forth with him on the edits. And I was one of the parts that I kept coming back to was where he was talking about how teachers in these places have to value the place if they're going to tell kids you shouldn't go anywhere. And right. like you have to say, you know, this is a place that is worthy of being. Yeah. Um, and and so often that's not the way teach like it makes it so easy for mm-hmm. te- for student kids to leave because the people who are raising them and teaching them don't uh, present the place as a valuable place. Right. They, they talk about getting out, you yeah. know, getting your education and getting out yeah. to bigger and better things and not coming home and helping to improve. But it's also almost an instant. There's it's like a, a one two punch because there's that. And then there's also like the institutionalized agriculture. Yeah. And so a lot of these farms can't sustain work anyway. Right. And then also the young blood is leaving. Yeah. And the and the kids who do stay suffer for it because they can't get work anymore or they don't like it there because everybody else is gone and they turn yeah. to drugs or alcohol or just being lazy, you know? So yeah. it's just, they're, they've been hit on a couple different sides. Yeah. Um, and he, it was very interesting to me because he was not bitter. At least he did not seem bitter about it. Hmm. He, he he knows the problem. He knows he has identified it, and he's working against it hmm. as best he can. And I, if it were me, I would just roll over and <laughs> cry, I guess, because it's just it's something that he loves, and it's yeah. being taken away in a few different ways. Yeah, you know, one thing that I was really struck by how much hu- sense of their sense of humor, how great their sense of humor is. Um, we laughed a lot. And like they laughed at each other a lot. She would tease him and he would tease her. Yeah. Um, and there's still some of that in the interview. And um, you mentioned that they're not bitter and it doesn't come across that way. They care a lot about their place and they're fighting for it. 
but there's also a sense of um, hope, I think, mm-hmm. that, and that sense of humor kind of seems to come from that and show through, show through through it, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I thought it was cool too, because his, I didn't realize his, or a large part of his family still lives like in the area, like his kids went away and then they came back. Yeah. And so he's kind of living that or his, his whole kind of immediate and extended family is now there. He was wrapping up our interview to go to like a great grandson or grandson's birthday or something. Yeah. I think a great grandson's first birthday. So they still have like their immediate community. Yeah. So that was interesting. Well, let's talk about your spread then, because you this is when you kind of handmade. So what mm-hmm. what went into that? And you can, again, this huh. is something you can see on our social media if you want to see it before the issues. That, in your yeah, mailbox. that one's been posted too. Um, what went into it? Um, or what was your process, or how are you? Uh, wanna... That one was tricky. I, it's a Wendell Berry spread, so it was hard. I tried to do some kind of woodcut type things with like rolling hills and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a couple other things, but they just weren't going anywhere. And I had this idea. Um, I've had it for a while. It's, it's, um, it's almost like a shadow box. I don't know what it, what you would call it exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's like a shadow box. Um, kind of an old wooden box with six compartments. And so I tried to pick out six different um, themes or motifs to um to put in each of the compartments in the box uh i i have no idea if anybody's interested in this but uh no i think <laughs> keep people talking will be because i'm interested people will be. um and so there's there's a ladder kind of going into the clouds there's a box of books there's waves what else is in there uh there's other things <laughs> And so the um, idea was they represent different things he was talking about in the... Yeah, and it's I wanted it to be handmade, so I made it. Um, I didn't think I was going to have time to do it, and I was on the fence whether I should try. And then I got that little voice like, on my <laughs> shoulder. I was like, you're going to regret it if you don't if you do don't, it. So if you don't try. I told my wife, it was on a Sunday afternoon, and I said, I have to go. I have to go to Hobby Lobby. And I have to buy a bunch of stuff because if I don't do this... I'm going to regret doing it. And even if it doesn't work, it'll be worth it. So I was giving myself a pep talk and trying to um, try to also <laughs> let my family know I'm going to be gone for working on this thing for six hours. <laughs> but it actually, it went pretty well because usually the um, the concept is the hardest. Mm-hmm. And then once you know what you need to do, you just go do it. Um, but this one was, this one was challenging. I hope it works. I think it, I think it worked. I think it looks good. No, it looks definitely looks <laughs> I don't know. Good. It's like the same thing when you're writing. You look yeah. at it so much, you're like, I don't even know anymore. Yeah. Um, but I thought I thought it was we, a cool we, idea. We talked about going heavy on images of Wendell Berry or whatever. But right. that's not his preferred approach. No. You know, he doesn't really want to pose for photographs anymore. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the photographs that are public domain or can be used or, or, or are media photos, people have seen them. Yeah. You know, they're not. You know, I guess we we posted one of he and Martin Cawthorn at an event, and so we then we went with the one of like me and the dog and the sheep in the yard, yeah. and things like that. Did you put the glasses one in? There was one of his glasses that was in there, but we had to pull that. We pulled that one. Yeah, for there's some cool ones. Um, I don't know. I'm still thinking of that spread, and I'm still thinking of things different ways to do it. It's funny with this magazine, like 
it takes a while to get out of your system because yeah, you're thinking sure. of these ideas for so long. So like in a few weeks, I won't be thinking about it anymore. But I already yesterday, I thought of a new spread for that. <laughs> and it's like already at the printer. <laughs> um, yeah, it's one of those things where uh, because it's a printed artifact and there's so many rounds of editing, it takes, it's different than just like a graphic for an, something on the web. Yeah. Or even like a little advertisement postcard or something like that is a very... It's a very different sort of approach. Like you, it's almost, you're a little bit more about concept and the artistry and less about like the message you're trying to get across in some ways, you know, if you're making an advertising banner or something, you got to get a specific amount of information across with these, you got to get a concept or an, or Mm -hmm. like an essence or an emotion or a feeling or an experience. Yeah, exactly. For sometimes, but it's probably why it's harder to get out of your system. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It takes me like you asked me the other day, what's, about the theme for the next issue. Yeah. And I was like, I got some ideas, but I might need to spend a month not thinking about it and come back fresh. Well, you start to realize why, why people have whole teams dedicated to magazines yeah. and not yeah. just a couple of people. Yeah. It is a crazy amount of work, but it's, it's like the, one of the things that I think we're getting kind of known for. And I think that speaks volumes. Yeah. I mean, it's the quality is great. I love it. I love having it. It's a, it's, it's really fun to do. Um, well, if you're going to be at conventions, um, April, May, June into the summer, and you, you can pick up a copy there. Um, if you're already on the list, you'll get a copy of this issue in the mailbox. Um, and we'll, you know, if you're, if you haven't gotten on the list yet, let us know. We'll try to get you copies. And if, like I said, if you're in Canada or England or somewhere else and you want, um, some copies in bulk, we'd be happy to send you a box. Um, you have any final thoughts on this issue? Is, I think it's a really good one. I'm really happy with it. I'm excited for people to see it. But no, I don't think so. I really want. I want. I want to get it. Yeah. I want can't it in can't our wait. Hands. Yeah. Um, well, thanks to uh, CLT Classic Learning Test for sponsoring uh, Forma this month. Uh, please go check them out at clt.org. Um, check out the good things they're doing. I got a couple emails this week with more colleges that are accepting it as one of their entrance exams. So thanks to them again. Um, we're excited to be partnering with them and hope that you will check them out. And again, that's clt.org. For Grant Pittman, for Matt Bianco, and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell Informa. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.